All right, money and power, and we're going to put this in the show notes. Um, money and power, uh, CBDC, stable coins, uh, and the future of privacy. Uh, I'm going to let these gentlemen do their introductions, but I wanted just to say thank you for flying in, both you two gentlemen. Grant, thanks for walking over or driving over in your Miata. Uh, Dan, stump the Bitcoiner, stump the brother. I expect a lot of questions. But a round of applause for these fine gentlemen. Can you hear me? Oh yeah. All right. Uh, we're we're gonna get into this. Uh, quick round of intros, and then we'll start talking about some cool stuff. Uh, I'm Grant McCarty, co-executive director of the Bitcoin Policy Institute. Uh, if you heard David talk in the last panel, he and I have worked together. Uh, we've you know hopefully been doing some cool things. Based here out of Nashville, seen a lot of you at Bitcoin Park. Uh, really excited for this panel today. Uh, Matt, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah. Thanks for having me. Uh, so Matthew Pines. Uh, I'm a Bitcoin. Um, a national Security uh, Fellow at uh, the Bitcoin Policy Institute. That's kind of like my hobby. Uh, my day job is I'm a managing consultant at the Krebs Stamos Group, where we basically do geopolitical risk advisory and cybersecurity risk advisory for large multinationals, so helping folks sort of navigate uh, an increasingly tenuous uh, geopolitical environment, uh, you know, de-risking their exposure to, say, China. Um, but have had long-standing interest in Bitcoin and written about kind of the intersection between Bitcoin, national security, geopolitics, kind of the future of the, the global monetary arrangement. So, yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Gerald Glickman. I've worked 10 years uh, in fraud and identity risk management, uh, previously in uh, digital marketing, web development, things like that. Currently at a bank doing uh, fraud policy and strategy. We bank gaming companies and some crypto exchanges. Um, so have learned a lot uh, from, from folks here and thrilled to be with you all this evening. Amazing. So this conversation uh, is going to go in a few different directions. If you saw the title, uh, we've kind of packed a lot in there. Money, power, central bank digital currencies, stable coins, uh, privacy, and then obviously we're here at Bitcoin Park. We're going to be talking about Bitcoin. Um, we're not going to be able to you know, answer all your questions about all of those things in this time. Um, I think we can answer you know, a couple. Um, and if we do that, I think we've done a good job. Uh, really what I want this conversation to be, or what we want this conversation to be, is an exploration of some interesting ideas that these various monetary networks, these various forms of money, uh, really these ideas that they cause us to think about or think about in a different way. Um, you know, Bitcoin is not very old, but in the short 12, 13 years that it's been around, um, it's caused a lot of people to radically shift their understanding of how our monetary system in this country and around the world works, um, what works about it, what doesn't, what can we change, what do we want to completely get rid of, and what do we really want to, you know, have stick around. So, you know, with that said, I think something that's been uh, taking place very recently is a push uh, in Washington, and you see this around the world, for central bank digital currencies. And I think what we're going to do just at the beginning of this conversation is define, like, define a couple terms, make sure everybody's on the same page, and then dig into essentially what is a central bank digital currency, why does it matter, and what interesting ideas does it bring up. Um, so at its core, a central bank digital currency is... Uh, a digital dollar. It is a direct liability of a central bank. Um, it is a cryptocurrency, not you know created by a commercial bank, but uh, in the United States, um, it would be by our central bank. So ultimately, it is digitizing the dollar. Um, what does that mean? What are some of the implications? We're about to get into that. Um, so at its core, just to lay the foundation. Why are we even exploring a central bank digital currency? What is the proposed use case for the United States or maybe some other countries around the world? Sure, I'll take it. Yeah, um, 
I think there's there's at least three major thematic forces at play. Um, one, you know, that I know Matthew, you're you're involved in a lot is is kind of the global monetary competition, right? Our our global rival, China, is pursuing this, and you know, we're effectively thinking about competing for the sake of competing, right? There's a sense of FOMO here. Um, the next thing thematically, I think that you can look at is the centralization of technology and power. Uh, especially over the last 30 years, uh, I'd submit. Um, you know, if, if you look at how the internet has grown, it's effectively monetized via advertising um, and personalization, right, via everyone kind of putting all their information and PII out there. Um, there are these massive identity graphs that are bought and sold by all sorts of companies to deliver the experiences that we have as, as consumers today. Um, and, and, and I think the, the third big force that you can point to are, uh, from, from banks and financial institutions and regulators, right? Where we're, we're realizing that, um, you know, domestically, uh, there is now a, an alternative existing viable monetary network that is outside of our regulatory purview. Um, and before Bitcoin, that was just a concept, right? And it was much easier easier to just say, well, this is what we have, so this is what we must accept. But now there is a true viable alternative uh, that exists uh, that we can truly compare and contrast and say, well, what about this? What about that? Um, and it's no longer a, a conceptual conversation. So Bitcoin hops on the scene, a bunch of other cryptocurrencies pop up. Now, all of a sudden, we have this you know, existing system, and then we have these new systems that are popping up that we can compare ex our existing system to. Um, you kind of brought up a lot. There's a lot to unpack there. I think we can start with this first idea that stems from, at its core, I think our government is looking at this and going, hey, crypto is really cool. It make th makes things faster, cheaper, et cetera. Um, how can we get all the benefits of crypto, but have the government control it, right? You get the stability of the dollar, but you get all the other benefits of the crypto. That's what we're hearing at BPI. We're hearing that on the Hill from offices, Democrat, Republican offices, et cetera. They're interested in a CBDC because they see things like Bitcoin or stable coins. They're a little scared of them, but they like some aspects of it. And they think, what if we could do this, but with the government? Now, <laughs> yeah, we're here to help. Uh, so with that, um, I think you, you touched on really the core of these issues though. And I think the first one is this idea of competition. And Matt, if you'd like to explore um, what does it mean? Uh, why are we trying to use a CBDC as competition against China? Where did that come from? Is that the right call? Yeah, certainly. And you know, I think CBDCs are one element of, from the you know, international perspective, that's important to keep in mind. That's separate from, say, the domestic context, because you know we live in a global integrated economy, and increasingly the international money system, you know, is directly you know connected to our domestic. Um, kind of policy framework, you know, the Fed is not just central banker for U.S. commercial bank, it's effectively the central bank for the world. And so its decisions, its policy um, approach is effectively, you know, the world's um, uh, policy approach. And so CBDC is a sort of a subset of what we see as sort of the unfolding geopolitical um, contest between, you might call it kind of a rising authoritarian um, uh, kind of alignment across Eurasia uh, that seeks to sort of upset uh, the existing sort of post-war uh, you know, rules-based uh, international framework uh, established by the U.S. and sort of codified right now by a whole set of institutions, the G7, the IMF, the World Bank, et cetera. Um, and sort of rising powers, you know, look back throughout history uh, that become rich and powerful, invest in the military capability, uh, increasingly don't want to um, 
you know, play by the rules that were set by the, by the incumbent power and want to write their own rules. And that has been sort of China's um, principal strategic objective for the past 20 years after sort of, uh, you know, biding their time and hiding their strength. Now they're seeking to more aggressively challenge the international framework. Uh, the U.S. as a status quo power uh, doesn't want to cede uh, control. And so you have sort of this, you know, increasingly uh, contentious uh, conflict uh, has not yet become um, a military conflict between U.S. and China. Um, uh, and so CBDCs is sort of one element of this unfolding strategic competition and rivalry. And China has a strategy that they've um, embarked on systematically for the past 10 years to expand their sphere of influence and to do this in a way that um, you know, uh, leverages their advantages in, in certain technologies. And so they've uh, invested in spreading the sort of quote, quote DCEP uh, uh, sort of digital yuan along the backs of their investment uh, uh, sort of strategic approach called the Belt and Road Initiative to try to um, increasingly extend uh, both uh, sort of soft power as well as sort of um, hard technical uh, dependencies across emerging markets, sort of bring them into so the Chinese sphere of influence. And the U.S. has looked at that, uh, kind of belatedly woken up to it as a strategic challenge. And I think the part of the impetus for this sort of monetary competition driving a U.S. CBDC is this sort of um, maybe not quite coherent idea that we need to sort of do what the Chinese are doing to sort of create a, an equivalent US CBDC that is attractive in similar ways to the digital yuan uh, so that sort of, you know, tipping powers don't sort of go into the Chinese orbit that can sort of stay in our, in our orbit. So like you should think about the digital yuan like in the same way that, uh, you know, the US thinks about like Huawei and ZTE and sort of the whole suite of, of Chinese technologies that US looks at increasingly um, as a threat and is trying to sanction and block out um, and sort of carve out kind of both technical and monetary blocks, essentially, sort of the world sort of moving in that direction. So that's like the international kind of impetus, I think, kind of this um, push from strategic competition with China. Um, but that is complicated by the fact that, you know, CBDC is often spoken about and analyzed as a domestic uh, sort of policy. And I think these two things uh, uh, sort of are going to be, uh, you know, come into more complicated dynamics. Um, because of the role of the dollar as an international you know, quasi-public good that uh, is an instrument of national power. And when we weren't weaponizing it, when it was just a neutral you know, um, reserve currency that could grease the skids of global commerce when globalization was functioning, uh, that was, you know, it had, its, it had its consequences. But when we start to weaponize that public good, um, folks start to you know, reappraise its, its risks and that sort of stability of that global system may... Um, Come under uh, increased uh, tension, and I, you know, I see the global CBDC, you know, dollarization um, via that sort of means as a like an like a last ditch attempt to sort of patch things back up to try to you know hold the guard basically. Um, uh, that's like the, that's the sort of the international context. You have anything to add there? <laughs> <laughs> All right, great panel over seal. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay, so essentially, the U.S. is worried about countries moving away from the dollar. Right, um, with the existence of China's central bank digital currency, other countries' central bank digital currencies, it's becoming easier than ever uh, for countries to move away from the U.S. dollar. Um, so, with that, there's essentially this attempt that it sounds like you're, uh, in some ways, insinuating is misguided um, to compete with China um, on the front of a central bank digital currency. Walk me through that. Why is that maybe not, uh, in your opinion, the uh, best way to go about competing? Um, with China's CBDC? Is it a technology issue? Uh, is it, um, you know, should we be exploring something else? Really take this wherever you'd like. Go for it. Yeah, I'll start. Um, I think out of the gate, it just doesn't align with American values uh, as I've come to understand them. Um, you know, we have a 
we have a federated system here uh, of laws and protections. Um, and, you know, regardless of how satisfied we are with them, uh, that has largely worked out, uh, I would say. Um, and it's allowed for, for innovation uh, and experimentation um, across all industries, right? So, um, you know, I, I, I'm not sure that, uh, you know, out author authoritarian China is the way that we want to go. That's not really the American way, as I understand it. Uh, this this country was founded on on principles of uh, of freedom uh, and federation, right? So, um, you know, collapsing the the intermediaries uh, that have that have sprung up um, in this federated framework uh, into a singular power uh, of you know owner and operator uh, for something such you know as important as transacting using money. Um, it, it just does, doesn't seem to align with American ideals as I understand them. Uh, I think there's there's probably other reasons, Matt. I'll pass it over to you. Yeah, I mean, the, the, on, on the international front, I mean, there's a reason why China has had to do these EPs because um, they're trying to sort of break into an existing, you know, globally dominant dollar system that is, you know, very hard to sort of supplant um, from the inside, right? Like they're trying to create their own version of SWIFT uh, called SIPS, which is sort of their own kind of um, bilateral clearing facility. Um, for, for, for the trade partners, but again, it's very small. And so they have to find sort of novel ways to sort of get inroads into, um, to spread their influence. So the, you know, but we don't have that need, right? We already have global dominance. We, SWIFT is a relatively dominant um, global clearing system. And so, okay, like what, what would a CBD do for us that, you know, we're, you know, that we're looking for it on the national front? And the real argument's kind of really wonky, but basically it comes down to the fact that the global dollar system because uh, we are the lender of last resort to you know, the offshore dollar market, when that offshore dollar market gets into trouble, we effectively have to bail it out. So if you go back in like, the early history of the United States, the reason why we created a Federal Reserve system in the first place is because a dollar in New York wasn't traded uh, at par with a dollar in San Francisco. You had different banks um, that their liabilities, which were the money of, of the era, you know, were not uh, equivalent to each other. And so that led to a very inefficient you know, onshore you know, U.S., um, sort of economic system, uh, lots of booms and busts and failures and all those sorts of pathologies associated with, you know, state banking regulation, et cetera. But one solution they came up with, uh, you can go back and, and relitigate the history, but what they did is they created the Federal Reserve to make sure that all onshore dollars traded at par. Um, over the course of the 20th century, as the dollar became the global reserve currency after our victory in World War II, the rest of the world destroyed, and we were the global, um, you know, the dominant uh, creditor, producer, you know, the most powerful economy, our liabilities were the most trusted, safe, and liquid um, asset to hold, and the world that we built in the post-war era used dollars. But what they realized that you know, they could do is invent their, create their own dollars and make dollar loans. And you had this offshore euro-dollar system emerge that um, wasn't directly backstopped by the Fed. So you had an onshore dollar system that was backstopped by the Fed, and you had this emerging euro-dollar, offshore dollar system that when it ran into trouble, you would effectively have to get backstopped by the Fed um, through swap lines, which were created in the 60s. And a swap line just is basically the Fed wiring dollars to a foreign central bank who then gives it to whatever domestic bank is in trouble. And um, that, you, know, you can do that on the margin, but as we've seen, you know, the scale of those bailouts has increased exponentially. Um, and just in the March 2020 uh, COVID crisis, uh, the swap line usage were in the trillions of dollars um, you know, on an unprecedented scale. 
And that creates, I think, a novel situation that the Fed has had to find themselves in is you know, the global lender of last resort, but they don't have the equivalent supervision authority over the global commercial banking system that they have on the onshore system. So the Fed can go into a US bank and enforce supervision, regulations, you know, capital, like you know, something like leverage ratios, all sorts of things to make sure that the bank doesn't get in trouble, doesn't need a bailout. They can't do that overseas. So this is a long-winded way of saying, like, I think one vision for a global CBDC, at least in like the US-dominated monetary block, is to make you know, the moral hazard issue a little bit um, uh, more under control, where they can control the issuance of dollar liabilities to offshore banks and effectively kind of bring more of the offshore system into an onshore system and turn the Fed truly into a global central bank, but using modern digital technology to do that. But that essentially is then increasing even more kind of a central single point of failure and turns the Fed, which is, you know, already maybe not the most democratic institution <laughs> into the global central bank, which is probably even less democratic um, than it is now. So that creates a whole host of you know, technical challenges, cybersecurity challenges, geopolitical challenges, because now monetary policy becomes explicitly geopolitical in those circumstances. Who gets the swap line? Who gets the favorable CBDC? And it just creates a whole bunch of issues that I'm not even sure the Fed wants at this point um, and may not actually be feasible to implement given the geopolitical order. Um, and that's like if we were a global hegemonic power, we could enforce this on a global scale. You know, even if it was practical, there'd be other questions. I'm not sure it's even practical at this point. And so that's the international context. That's why all these, all these countries are exploring you know, cross bridges between CBDCs. It's a big topic of the IMF. I'm sure the World Bank meetings are all talking about how do we make these things cross-compatible. Um, again, you put people in a room, they whiteboard it out, sounds great. When you actually have like, contractors building these systems, it's a whole different story. Who's going to maintain it? How easy is it for, for them to be hacked, for them to be taken down? Not sure you want to do that in an environment where you know your main adversaries are really good at hacking and taking those sorts of digital systems down. So, um, yeah, pause it there. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think it's it also thematically aligns with kind of potentially the, this peak of centralization that we may be seeing, um, you know, with respect to, to U.S. dominance. Uh, but particularly, you mentioned SWIFT, right? Um, we've we've been pretty effective at at leveraging uh, you know sanctions. Uh, over the last 30, 40 years, and and um, you know when we when we pushed Russia out of out of SWIFT, we we quickly realized that oh, it turns out that like all you need to do uh, <laughs> to send money to a counterparty and have like a, a, a settlement network is liquidity, and if you have a trading partner that is willing to participate, then technology in fact like makes that really easy. Um, so I think we. We kind of overshot there. We expected that to be a, a major blow, and we didn't realize that the hurdle rate, you know, from a technological perspective to just send and receive value has gone, you know, basically to commodity status. Um, and I know there's there's several, you know, settlement networks that are spinning up all over the world, um, but I, I think that's a classic example of kind of the network effects and, and the costs associated with, you know, actually moving money uh, in today's world. I think it's really interesting. Uh, you know, we're a few minutes into this panel. We've talked about a lot of uh, the implications of CBDCs from you know a global order, uh, and it feels so divorced from a lot of the conversations that I'm having um, with lawmakers, with uh, their staffers, um, you know, people who are touting the benefits of a central bank digital currency and a retail central bank digital currency, which means you know uh, the central bank would make the dollar or the digital dollar a direct liability. Um, you'd have an app on your phone, essentially, you'd have a digital dollar, you'd be able to spend it at your local grocery store. Um, presumably, everybody would have to accept it, et cetera. Um, 
they're talking about this for like the benefit of the everyday person. They're talking about this from a financial inclusion perspective. Um, what we're talking about now doesn't really come up. And so I'm curious, uh, you mentioned this idea of, you know, we're at the peak of centralization. Um, what are uh, people missing in the current conversation? Uh, why are those ideas, you know, uh, the ideas we're talking about and the things that people are actually saying are the reasons for creating this so divorced? Um, is there something malicious at play? Is this simply a sign of, uh, I guess, to your point, Gerald, you know, uh, the ebb and flow of, of how we've seen systems in our country play out? Yeah, I'll take a stab at it first. Um, I think one one big reason is is potentially just a, a failure to understand how the global monetary system actually works today, right? Um, for for all intents and purposes, we have a CBDC in this country, right? <laughs> We're not banks are not settling with big buckets of cash, right? Like these are digital ledgers um, that are controlled by permissioned entities, right? So. Um, Conceptually, I, I I don't see a lot of differences uh, between what we're doing today and how people describe um, kind of a, a wholesale or retail CBDC. Uh, so I think that's probably a, a big part of it is just failure to actually like understand how all the pipes work. I work in banking. I don't understand how it all works. Uh, it's very it's it's complicated, um, but it's it's digital settlement. Sure, I mean I I think. Um, could you make the case that there are benefits potentially or conceptually um, for consumers with respect to uh, lower fees to use money, uh, faster settlement, um, you know, more equitable access to the financial system? Sure, I guess. Um, I, I'm not sure that I've heard a well-articulated use case or need um, and an explanation of why the outcomes of that system would be significantly different than the outcomes that we have today. Um, so Matt, yeah, curious for your take. Yeah, it's important to see like, what do we have now, like domestically, right? So banks settle with each other. Um, and one of the things they use, we've done a you know, Fed wire and his, you know, the basic kind of system that processes um, you know, transfers between bank to bank. Uh, and the Fed is the intermediary uh, that uh, that ensures those settlements occur, and that um, you know the trillions of dollars that pass between banks to grease you know ordinary commerce you know happen. Um, Fed now you know famously in February twenty fourth two thousand twenty one crashed uh, for you know several hours because a developer um, thought he was working in the um, uh, the development environment and turned out to be working in the production environment and you know pushed uh, a code change that took down the whole system. So not something that instills a whole lot of confidence in uh, you know them taking more power uh, and centralizing it into these databases, um, which are by the way right now like like legacy COBOL databases that are like cobbled together in you know very you know inelegant, inelegant ways. They're trying to push out. It's been many years in the making, kind of an upgrade. This is the big new thing that Fed is. Um, Pride about called Fed Now, which is meant to be like the real-time gross settlement system, um, and it will probably be. It's certainly an improvement over over Fedwire, but again, this is just you know essentially um, bank-to-bank settlement, uh, maybe broadening the, the you know which other kind of large entities can use it. Again, not exactly like world-changing stuff, um, and I think they see CBDC as like the next evolution of this, uh, especially at the wholesale level between bank-to-bank, -bank, where again, it's not that big of a deal. It's not like a big like earth-shaking development. Um, the big difference is changing it from just a settlement system to like a savings account, which effectively is a safe asset, right? That you could think of them as the same way. And that's when it creates a larger set of challenges that are, I think, inherently irreconcilable in terms of you know, policy objectives. So in the sense, 
if you did have a retail CBDC, which in this sense is a savings account that anyone can hold at the Fed, um, or a checking account, depending on how they model it, you know, how much you can withdraw for what, for what purchases, um, the basic premise is, or the basic challenge is, okay, if you offer a commensurate interest rate with what you can get at a commercial banking system, um, well, everyone's just going to move all their money over to the Fed because it's the same interest rate, but the Fed is marginally less risky than the bank because the bank gets its money from the Fed. So why would I want you know, even that tiny little counterparty risk when I could just hold my money at the Fed and get the same exact interest rate? So everyone's money would leave the banking system, reserves would fall out of the banking system. Obviously, the banking system, the banking lobbyists would not like that, probably would be bad for the banking system. Um, might undermine the banking system, the solvency. And there's a whole bunch of other consequences that would flow from that. So that's not clearly what they're going to do. So then what are they going to do? Like They're going to pay out less interest on your Fed account. So effectively enforcing negative interest rates relative to what you could otherwise hold. OK, well, then why would I do that? Why would I move money, <laughs> even if it's marginally safer? Well, I have a TIC insurance, and the banking system seems relatively stable. Why would I move my money over to the Fed if it's going to pay me less? So then why would you, so effectively no one would use it. So you'd have to force people to use it. Again, how, why would you, you know, then you're thinking like, well, how would you force people to do that? You maybe compel them that you have to use your, your Fed um, CBDC to, as a condition of receiving, say, uh, you know, social transfers, right? Um, essentially, use it as a way to pay out, you know, social security or other sorts of social um, sort of benefit schemes, uh, which again might be might be one way to do it, but it's probably going to be, you know, like in this sense, like really affecting mostly the marginalized in the society. Um, uh, or you have to cap how much you can put in it, right? Because you don't want to drain the banking system, so we're going to pay out the same amount of interest rate. But we could only hold two thousand, three thousand, four thousand dollars in it. Okay, again, but it's not that, not that useful then, right? I can hold maybe some floating liquidity in there, but again, it's paying me the same interest rate. Why would I use this unless I'm being forced to do it, or there's some like carrot that I may get? Again, all this just seems kind of like a contrived scheme <laughs> that's not really going to be adding much to what we already have. Like, what's the whole? Well, why are we going to do all of this just to get to that point where we're trying to like um, satisfy this sort of uh, irreconcilable trilemma? Uh, and then also expose us to novel cybersecurity risks, novel political risks, uh, to what end, right? This is the most fundamental question of like, domestically, there doesn't seem to be a problem that's solving. Um, so at best, like you may like have some marginal use case you can imagine, but you're gonna invest a whole lot of money, a whole lot of capital, um, political capital, and expose yourself to a whole other set of risks that you didn't need it to. Um, so this is where I think it's not that feasible as like a retail model. But I think the question that we all need to consider is like, what's the, you know, let's like like the the trajectory this might this might head if we go from this like wholesale model that no one cares about that's kind of technocratic and boring. It's just an upgrade to Fed to Fed now, bank to bank clearing. Oh, and by the way, because of we have international banking system, we're going to add this like cross bridge, mutual compatibility with other friendly systems. Again, please don't care, don't worry about it. It's just like you know upgrading the plumbing basically. And then it just so happens if we do that for five or ten years. Then the technical infrastructure is there to just like slap on a retail API that like all of a sudden introduces this new feature that maybe wasn't democratically you know debated over a long period of time, and you have this like turnkey you can flip, um, and now everyone is you know uh, kind of uh, forced to jump into the system, and you didn't have that time for kind of proper debate. So I think that's why it's still useful to have the debate now, because even if you don't move straight to a retail, a retail CBDC. Which I think would be, you know, heavily politically contested. It's not likely to be um, uh, something that Congress would, would pass up. But if you frame it as just as an upgrade to the wholesale banking system and kind of boil a frog over five or ten years, then you get to the point where retail CBDC could be much more feasible to technically implement, and maybe the political um, 
kind of gears have already been turned enough that it becomes possible. So even though I don't think it's going to happen in your time soon, you think you still need to have the debate now because you know that that is still a, like a clear trajectory. So my takeaway from a lot of this is there are a lot of risks. There are a lot of unknowns. Uh, you know, the reason China has a CBDC now is because they've been ex exploring it for years and testing it for years and tweaking things along the way. Um, this isn't something that's just going to happen tomorrow. And if it did, uh, there'd be potentially like catastrophic, uh, you know, outcomes. Um, so lots of risks, right? Uh, from centralization, cybersecurity aspects. You kind of go down the list. Um, and one of the things we keep, you know, coming back to and. Uh, you know, multiple people uh, on Capitol Hill have actually said this. Um, you know, Senator Haggerty has, has come out and asked the question of essentially what problem are central bank digital currencies solving? Um, and, you know, to this point, not many people have been able to, or, you know, clearly articulate the answer to that question. And I think this leads into the third point that uh, you brought up at the beginning, Gerald, which is this idea that the emergence of other monetary networks has caused us uh, to start to essentially analyze the existing financial system we have, what are the good aspects of it? What are the aspects that maybe we want to throw away or, you know, we want to tweak? Can these emerging monetary, monetary networks coexist um, in a world where the existing financial infrastructure, um, you know, operates the way it does? Um, and you start looking at the alternatives that we do have, things like stable coins, um, which are coins that, you know, are typically pegged one-to-one -to, -one, uh, to the currency of choice. A lot of those will be pegged one-to-one -to, -one to a U.S. dollar. Um, you know, the idea is uh, if you want to be able to use the dollar digitally, why do we need a whole CBDC when you could just use a stable coin um, or something like Bitcoin, which is this open permissionless monetary network? Uh, so let's explore some of these alternatives uh, in comparison to a central bank digital currency. What are some of the themes that, uh, from y'all's perspective, it's really gotten you thinking about um, how does that inform where we go from here, given everything we've talked about, changing world orders, et cetera? Um, <laughs> I don't expect many concrete answers, um, but what uh, I do expect is, uh, like, what can people leave here, you know, chewing on? What are some big themes that you've taken away, um, and what do we take away from the CBDC, stablecoin, Bitcoin idea? Sure. Yeah, I'll give it a crack. Um, so I think it's 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 a very human response um, to to respond. Uh, with with fear uh, when there is a a, a new paradigm uh, for something fundamental that you don't understand, right? Um, and you know uh, the associated action that usually comes after that fear is is an attempt to try to control everything that you can, right? Uh, so I think that is a, a a driving or potentially motivating force for this push towards CBDCs of, hey, here's Bitcoin, this open permissionless network out here that that people are using. Who knows how? Or nobody's talking to us about it. Uh, clearly, the thing that we have to do is 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 control um, because that's scary, um, and this is outside of kind of the regulatory purview, and it's not people aren't supposed to be doing that. Um, but the the fact that Bitcoin exists and continues to exist, um, I think I alluded to this earlier, is a a primary catalyst for folks in finance and policymakers to you know, actually be able to, to, to look at a real thing and say, huh, look at this. People are sending value peer-to-peer -peer in an unpermissioned way all over the world. Um, how else were they doing that before? Okay, here's our system. <laughs> here's all the rules, regulations, and outcomes of that. Um, I work at the intersection of these two things every day. Um, and I've, you know, kind of committed myself to, to running towards that, that train wreck. 
um, because it, it, it is seemingly um, an, an inevitable, incompatible clash, right? Uh, so it's, it's fascinating to, to think about, okay, uh, you have regulated financial institutions that are, you know, trying to get in this game um, and trying to, um, you know, derive revenue via fees or custody services or, or otherwise, you know, us doing our, our, our monetary thing here. Um, but clearly there's some regulatory extrapolation that is happening. And I, I often wonder, um, you know, as uh, Bitcoin, you know, continues to exist, the, the gravity uh, that it commands uh, and attention that it commands from the existing monetary networks um, grows and grows, right? Be and, and, and similarly as well, right? That, you know, people are thinking about Bitcoin, I would say a lot less so, um, but, but still to some degree from the, from the existing monetary networks, right? Of how can we uh, find ways to thread these needles around identity, sanctions, uh, and, and all the other important compliance aspects of a, of a global monetary network, um, how can we make that work with, with Bitcoin? So there is an amazing and natural tension here. Um, I, I'm very curious to, you know, continue to watch which goalposts from which side continue to get moved, right? Um, and at what point we say, you know what, we've done all we can, um, if you want to work with or use Bitcoin with the with the current monetary system, it's got to be done this way. Um, and if you don't want to do that, then, you know, the beautiful thing is Bitcoin continues to exist. Right. Um, and you can use Bitcoin however you want. So um, the, the, the fact that it still exists um, and every day that that goes by that it continues to exist will continue to have a, a positive effect on our current financial system because folks are forced to look at that thing and understand it um, and say, hmm, like there's a game that's being played here um, and similar to the sanctions uh, concept, right? If you hit that dog with a stick too hard and that stick breaks, you know, that dog is no longer scared of you. Um, and, and there are now two players in the game. So, um, you know, I, I think Bitcoin uh, has has survived the storm. Uh, I think the cat is largely out of the bag. Um, we shouldn't take it for granted. We still have to fight for it uh, every day, no doubt. But um, yeah, I'm I, I'm continuously fascinated around the intersection of of these things and uh, how the permissionless nature of Bitcoin will continue uh, to inform uh, and 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 pressure the you know how we think about. Uh, the regulatory regime for our existing monetary system as these things attempt to integrate or, you know, decide to, you know, this is where we stop, this is where we go our separate ways. So. Yeah, I think my biggest takeaway is not to frame CBDCs versus Bitcoin as like an oppositional pair, um, both for like messaging strategy, but also I think conceptually they don't quite map at the same layer. In my mind, I view kind of CBDCs and stable coins as like, the sort of payment layer comparison between kind of a centralized permissioned payment system that calls itself a crypto related um, mechanism and a stable coin uh, or in those variations therein. But that's like, those are the relevant comparison. And I compare Bitcoin more to the US treasury security as a reserve asset, um, as a synthetic commodity on the one hand and as a, you know, a security uh, that's the, you know, represents the full freight and credit um, of, uh, of the United States government. Um, such as people maintain over the 
indefinite future. And so those are very different dynamics because U.S. Treasury security, when people talk about Bitcoin being a threat to the dollar, it's kind of a confused analysis because the U.S. dollar is just a, it's just a unit of account. It's just a word that we use to call a certain ledger entry. And I can just, like as a bank, or even a shadow bank, I can just say, I've issued you a dollar because I've made you a loan. And now you have some spendable dollars, as long as other people are willing to recognize that balance sheet entry as a dollar. What, what backs our global dollar system is collateral, and that collateral system is U.S. Treasury security. So U.S. Treasury security is actually much more systemically important to the world monetary system um, than, like, quote, unquote, the dollar, which is a sort of, almost like an ontological concept, right? It's not like a thing. It's just like this sort of um, measure of how big balance sheets are um, in, in regulated financial institutions. Um, whereas what's really interesting is the sort of unfolding dynamic is between U.S. Treasury security as a global reserve asset, different from the U.S. dollar as a global reserve currency. And the, the system we set up post, you know, really the 1970s was to try to replace um, gold and then graft uh, the treasury security to essentially the oil market using the dollar as like the intermediary and to you know, use our global military power to enforce structural demand for U.S. treasury securities that would allow us to effectively uh, extract seniorage from the rest of the world and give us kind of the financial um, surplus to outcompete the Soviets and you know, reinforce our dynamic, which is what we did and we won the Cold War. And then we were like, oh, this is great. Now we can run indefinite debts because we can just continue to print and continue to um, run one larger uh, uh, um, deficits because we'll just have indefinite buyers of our debt. 2008 kind of broke that model, and the Fed had to become the largest marginal buyer of our debt. 2020 broke that model even worse. <laughs> um, and now we're on this path of you know, persistent $1 trillion plus structural deficits, which means we're just going to be pushing treasury securities into a market where there's less demand structurally for it. And even around, or, you know, our estuarial our, our allies like Bank of Japan, you know, effectively a vassal state, is having to sell treasury securities because they're under dollar stress. So we've built this global monetary arrangement premised on U.S. treasury securities being the safe and liquid asset that you hold because you can always sell it and there will always be a buyer for it. Um, and so it's good as cash. And what we saw in various sort of spasms in the, in the financial system principally the repo market crash in 2019 and then the freeze of sort of the treasury market in March of 2020, that the U.S. Treasury security isn't safe because, one, your reserves can be seized or you might not be able to find a buyer when you need to. And it's not very liquid. We're seeing this now. And the U.S. Treasury, security, uh, US treasury Secretary came out and said they're concerned about the functioning of the treasury security market um, not being very liquid. And 60% of the markets trade by high-frequency traders. Um, and the Fed has really no idea what they're doing uh, when they're trading. So we've sort of built this whole global system on a very kind of rickety foundation. <laughs> um, and we're stressing it even more. Uh, and then we have the geopolitical angle to layer in. So I see this whole thing as being like not a very stable foundation for enduring national power over the definite future. Um, and if we think we're just going to like throw a CBDC on top of that and it's going to like fix everything, like we're delusional. Um, like, the, the, like the rot is deep and it's in the, it's in the, it's in the foundation. Um, so I think some of this conversation about CBDC versus Bitcoin is kind of a distraction from the core issue, which is, okay, we can have different payment systems. A CBDC of some form probably is coming in some form, and you know, it needs to be, you know, make sure that it respects civil liberties, and it's probably you know, something we want to heavily constrain um, and, and limit uh, as much as we can. But like, the foundational question for the global monetary system isn't a CBDC. It's what is the future reserve asset? Um, and to what extent does Bitcoin's relative monetization um, support or help you know, reinforce U.S. national economic strength because we hold the most Bitcoin. <laughs> so if Bitcoin were to monetize relative to, say, the U.S. Treasury security being demonetized, uh, you know, every day you check it, it's crashing. Um, you know, relative to, say, gold, right, which Turkey, Saudi Arabia, um, 
India, China, Russia, they've all been acquiring gold for the past 10, 12 years. So they're clearly positioning for a radical shift to the global monetary arrangement in a way that would be really just disadvantageous to us. Um, and so like, what's our backup plan? We're putting all of our chips on US Treasury security being safe and liquid and indefinite demand forever. Like, I think that's maybe not a safe bet. Um, and meanwhile, adversaries are actively positioning to not only like use gold or shift to a separate system, but to like destroy the treasury market. And they're, they're in a position to potentially try to do that. Um, so I don't think Bitcoin is going like, to save the day. But I think we should be thinking about it as like a strategic opportunity that's like, hey, you know, this is like a good backup plan. And maybe its relative monetization is in our interest. So I try to like, reframe the debate. Like The key takeaway is like, Bitcoin and the treasury market, um, kind of those things need to be considered together as an interesting kind of monetary um, dynamic. And then stable coins with CBDCs, that's like the new interesting dynamic. Um, and the one, like the last point before I start keep rambling, is um, stable coins offer an interesting connection there because you, depending on how you model a regulatory framework for a stable coin, you know, one of the things you could do is you could require that they hold high quality liquid assets as the reserves. So in a world where there's marginal, you know, constricting balance sheet demand to absorb new, new treasury securities, well, hey, guess what? Like, here's new balance sheets that you can stuff treasury securities into. And those balance sheets will likely expand as Bitcoin monetizes. So that's like another growing source of demand that you can kind of hitch the treasury security wagon to as Bitcoin monetizes. So it's not an either or. It's actually like a reinforcing dynamic. Um, I think that's probably not an efficient way to do it because, you know, uh, you might not want, like, uh, a whole bunch of like short dated collateral being tied up in, in, in stablecoin balance sheets. Like, probably the most efficient way to do it is just to give them direct access to the Fed, like give them master accounts, just like um, money market funds, um, and you know, give them special depository uh, um, you know, institution or sort of narrow bank licenses. So, like, that's probably the best way to go. Um, but I think that's the, where the policy conversation is heading in DC. Is, is really, I mean, CBDCs are some people who are like all in on CBDCs, but like, most people are like, we don't really get it. Like, what's the problem here? Meanwhile, there's like companies that are issuing, issuing stablecoins that have like, you know, business models. And I think that's probably where, if you're thinking more like adversarially, like the, the, the angle is probably more concerning is like whitelisting or state capture of stablecoins um, that give the, for all intents and purposes, the same sort of degree of, you know, arm's length coercive force of a CBDC, but, you know, using, you know, a private instrument um, to, you know, to, and that's basically the model the US government has used with sanctions. Like it's a form of viral governance where, you know, we put an entity on the OFAC sanctions list and literally every like company around the world instantly freaks out because they have to like make sure that they're not going to get slapped with um with with those uh with those sanctions um which is a which is a strict liability regime. So like that's the that's the kind of coercive power I could see being enforced through stable coins, um, where you know all the debate over CBDCs could be distracted if you're thinking, oh well it's just stable coins, so it's fine. It's more to what extent do these um, payment instruments become you know, vectors of coercion, and that's really what you want to fight against, not the technology itself. Yeah, but at least there'd be more than one of them. Exactly, yeah. Right. And competition and regulatory, you know, like freedom, right? Like, right. you know, you have a choice, and you could have different stablecoin issuers in different jurisdictions, right. um, and it's probably going to be, you want market competition, and yes. then, you know, if one is like, you know, really sanctioned and really restrictive, maybe that's not that useful at a certain point. Yeah, um, or, or maybe it has a different price. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's more like the value judgment. Like, to what extent are U.S. authorities willing to allow, you know, or to recognize like a free market for the dollar? <laughs> yeah, the... And, and, and I think it goes back again to, to the power and benefits of a federated model, right? Mm -hmm. um, whereas if you prescribe a singular solution, like people may use it or 
just like what we saw with, with Swift, like they just say, <laughs> they say, eh, we're good. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll do our own thing. Um, so I, I think that the, the likelihood of a positive outcome for, for our country and, and to create that demand for, um, you know, dollar backed assets, um, you know, much better path to, to take the stable coin route uh, and to have multiple, you know, private issuers in that, in that game uh, and let this thing continue to evolve. And the last point, because is, I think also the technology here might change so fast that like whatever we're saying now might be boot in five years. So like yep. for the developments just on Bitcoin, right? And there's a whole separate debate over um, tarot and other sorts of things and MEV, whatever, right? But like, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't want to prejudge what could happen just on the technology stack of Bitcoin and this sort of, you know, kind of quasi arms race between regulators and, you know, sort of legacy officials, institutions, and the Bitcoin ecosystem could unfold in, you know, on unpredictable dynamics. And so things could be vastly different in a few years. So I want there to be a, you know, a hopeful takeaway here. My takeaways from, you know, your final comments are essentially uh, Bitcoin's existence, uh, stable coins, you know, if you partake, um, is powerful in and of itself, right? The fact that it exists um, forces us to, uh, it essentially creates a check and, and a balance against our existing monetary systems, our financial infrastructure that we have in this country that we have around the world. You know, if you're Western Union, you no longer can say, hey, I'm Western Union, uh, here's a 14% remittance fee because I'm all you've got, right? Um, now you have to compete with global permissionless open monetary networks. If you are, uh, you know, maybe a, a U.S. doomer, right? And, and you believe that, uh, you know, the U.S. dollar is maybe not going to be the global reserve asset um, in the coming future, that something else is going to take its place. Um, you know, the existence of Bitcoin as a potential for, you know, being the new global reserve asset forces the U.S., the United States, to figure out uh, what the hell are we going to do, you know, if and when uh, that system, that old guard does change. Um, so the existence of Bitcoin is powerful in and of itself. Um, and the fact that we're even having this conversation, uh, I, I think, is incredibly important. So with that said... Thanks, everybody. Enjoy your night. Another round of applause for these guys. Seriously. <laughs>